This is not like TV, only better. It's only fair to pay for quality first-run movies. What, that's it? That's your movie? Well, I said that I had an idea for a movie. Hey now, you are listening to Screen Watching. It's our weekly thing where we watch things on screens and talk about them. Revolutionizing podcasting, one podcast at a time. My name is Dan Barrett, joined here as always by the um, Hess Suit, Simon Foster. I am Hess Suit at the moment. I'm, I'm working on my winter look, just putting the beard on and not shaving the back. So it's, it's, it's coming along well. Um, good afternoon, good evening, and good night to you, Dan Barrett. Uh, it is a very hectic week on screen watching. We think every week we're going to tighten things up. doesn't happen. It's a very busy world. The media landscape in which we exist. Um, what could we possibly find of interest this week, Dan? Oh, look, there's a whole bunch of things we can talk about. So I think both of us are pretty interested in the fallout from the epic Oprah and Harry and Meghan interview. Uh, particularly interested in the Piers Morgan of it all, from my perspective, mm. at least. Uh, we say goodbye to Kim's convenience. Uh, there's a Pepe Le Pew scandal. <laughs> uh, Joss, <laughs> uh, we've got the Zack Snyder's Justice League that got leaked on the internet by HBO Max, of all people. Oh, Look, we're talking about that. George Clooney, he'll get a reference in here in a little while. Yeah. Disney Plus, they mark a significant uh, milestone. Look, there's a lot of things to talk about. How about we just dive into it? Let's get straight into the news section. The week that was, as we like to call it, yes, the Harry and Meghan interview with Oprah was the big screen-watching news of the week. Some extraordinary figures from around the world, all of it sort of coming to a bit of a head with that um, that dedicated royalist, let's put it in those terms, Pierce Morgan being sacked from his ITV morning job. Um, what's your take on all this small screen guy? Look, I was, I don't know. So I'm someone who is definitely a very strong supporter of the idea that Australia becomes a republic. So I've only got sort of a passing interest in the roles at the best of times. Mm. But I think much, okay, so I think the audience for the Oprah special fall into three buckets. And that's what we're going to talk about this week. So we've got a US audience for it. We've got an Australian audience. We've got a British audience. And they're all coming to it from different perspectives. So the British audience are coming to it from a perspective of the royal families, obviously deeply entwined in the culture of the UK, uh, politically, socially, culturally. The media focus on the royals and have for decades now. Uh, it's just, it's all about the scandal. It's all about the uh, popcorn, soapy nature of it all. Mm-hmm. And look, going from like Diana onwards, obviously has been a big part of the media and the overall story there. So I think that the anger and support and just the fever of that interview was really palpable. In the US, I think they've got a very detached view from it where they see it more as a gossip scandal mag kind of a story that may be a little bit more invested in it these days because of things like The Crown, which have kind of fed into that and given a bit more of a grounding, I think, in a US context. But even so, I think they're looking at it from more of a distance, but they're interested so uh, rated remarkably well there and then we're here in australia where we're kind of straddling both where i think there's a lot of people like me who are ardent that we should become a republic and not have to worry about the monarchy and so i think we're a bit more detached from the royals but then there's those who maybe do feel a bit more in line with the way the british are looking at it and really are deeply involved in like the minutiae as to what's going on like they even know who like the non-major royals are and supporting characters like your beatrices and whatnot it's pretty extraordinary we should have a look at the figures that, it, that the, the interview pulled um, 
in broadcast. Uh, CBS, the US network that carried it, um, grabbed just over 17 million viewers uh, in the US. ITV, when the um, uh, when the interview aired in the UK, drew 12.3 million. Now, in 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 eyeballs, that became the biggest audience on any UK channel outside of any pandemic-related announcements since the Strictly Come Dancing final on BBC in December 2020. Here in Australia, Network 10 um, delivered a national average audience of more than 1.78 million. Um, And when the interview dropped and news started to spread of its uh, volatility, the Viacom CBS stock rose by nearly 13% on Monday, closing at $83.66, which is an all-time record. So what that says to me... Rather than sort of deep diving into the into the the, the minutiae of of television politics and television machinations, is that the celebrity interview still has a lot of sway. We think back to the classic days of it, the um, ironically the Princess Diana interview um, when Michael Jackson goes on the record. There were some huge numbers there. Um, just recently, we've seen celebrity tell-alls like Alan versus Pharaoh. Um, and Neverland once again takes some big numbers. So there's still a fascination with with the lives of celebrities, and I think Harry and Meghan have sort of almost transcended their royal connections and become legitimate mainstream celebrities now that they're outside of the palace grounds. So th- those are pretty extraordinary numbers. Look, they are incredible. It's interesting that we talk about the value of the celebrity interview where when the show was actually so the program was produced by oprah's production company harpo and they made it exclusively for a broadcast tv release they knew this is going to be incredibly buzzy and actually packaged it to cbs and said hey look here you go here's the program it's only for broadcast they didn't want to sell it to netflix they didn't want to sell it to amazon or anyone else they wanted to have it be a big water cooler discussion yep. program and so they knew broadcast tv was the only way to do that so they got it on CBS, but when they sold it to CBS, they didn't actually give them the streaming rights to it mm. either. So they were able to do catch up via the CBS.com app, but they weren't able to put it onto their big budgeted Paramount Plus yeah, app. There's look- and so when you talked about the CBS stock price rising, when all the news stories came out the next day saying that it wasn't going to be on their big streaming service they just launched, there was actually a pretty big dip mm. in the share price as well. So that was kind of a bit interesting to watch from a business sort of standpoint. But yeah, it just speaks to the fact that there is still definitely a little bit of grunt left in the idea of a broadcast model attracting a whole bunch of white And just briefly, the sacking of Piers Morgan in the wake of his comments, um, the internet blew up, suggesting that he's uh, somewhat less than a classy act to doubt the honesty of a woman who's uh, declaring suicidal thoughts. Um, he's kind of a scumbag, let's face it. And to, <laughs> to, for ITV to finally part ways with him... Um, especially considering that that ITV have fully backed a mental health campaign in the UK um, shows that they're they're finally finding some sort of um, satisfactory moral ground, don't you think? Look, I mean, any story like this doesn't exactly exist just in a bubble. Mm. So Piers Morgan, I think it's been fairly well known that he's been looking to get out of that contract. Uh, There's two new conservative news stations that are launching in the US and uh, in the UK in the next couple of months. You got GB News and then there's the new one that's owned by Rupert Murdoch. Um, I can't remember if that's actually been branded yet or not. But effectively, I think everyone's looking at the idea that Piers Morgan may have been wanting to get out of breakfast anyway and head over to one of these channels. So I think this is basically the excuse that ITV were looking for to get rid of a very polarizing figure. But at the same time, I think he was quite happy to leave. And there was the moment where he walked off the set 
Worth noting, he's not the first person to walk off that set. <laughs> That's a show which has the hosts quite regularly antagonizing each other. And uh, even the guy that was antagonizing Piers, forcing Piers to storm off in a half. Like a few months ago, Piers had been antagonizing him and he stormed off in a half. So yeah, it's off. just something that regularly happens on that show. In, more, in happier news, a show called Super Seema is debuting on the YouTube Originals channel. Um, now, this is a, an African production, a, a female-led Nairobi-based production company called Kukuya, which in Swahili means to grow, has partnered with Oscar winner Lupita Nyong'o um, and produced Super Seema, which is the story of a young girl uh, and her twin brother on their mission to protect their African town from the villainous Tobor. Um, it's certainly got elements of Dora the Explorer all over it, but to have Lupita Nyong'o involved, to have uh, black representation uh, for children on the screen and to have it available worldwide via the YouTube originals is, is kind of a big deal. So uh, check out Super Seema on the YouTube original channel. A lot of, um, lot of episodes up there. This week, we are saying goodbye to Kim's Convenience, or at least conceptually we are, because the upcoming fourth season of the show will be the final season of the program. So that's, that's a debut, I believe, on Netflix in mid-April. This is the show which, actually, before we do this, let's play a clip from the program. I need some money. Oh, um, actually, I need 200. For what? There's this concert. $200 per concert? Too much. Take a 20 and buy album. So Simon, before we go too much further, Kim's Convenience, have you watched the show? I know of it. I know of its popularity. No, I haven't. I've seen sort of clips from it, but no, I'm, I'm, I'm not all over Kim's Convenience. Although I do understand that the groundswell of sadness and um, hope that it'll be sort of picked up somewhere else has uh, come about in the wake of its cancellation. Absolutely warranted sadness because this is one of TV's great little gems at the moment. The premise of it is it's set in Toronto. It's about a Korean-Canadian family who are dealing with um, interpersonal issues, uh, their customers, and the world changing around them. So one of the main emotional points for the series is that you've got the father in the show, uh, played by Paul Sun uh, Hyung Lee, and people may know him as a recurring guest star in The Mandalorian this past season. Uh, he's the patriarch of the family. There's a son and a daughter, and the son who is in his early to mid-20s at this point, there's been a bit of a falling out. So he's off working for a car detailership, and they're not really talking, but the son's talking to the rest of the family. And so that's kind of this emotional um, story that's been running from the very first episode through to where the show will wind up. The thing is that they decided to cancel the fourth season with the departure of the two creators of the show, who had previously announced that they wanted to move on to other things. They were going to continue the show, though, so it had already been greenlit mm. for a fifth and sixth season. While CBC Television in Canada uh, was chugging along nicely for them, the real success story is Netflix, who had picked it up quite early in, and globally there was a very loyal audience for this show, quite sizable as well. And so when they announced that they were going to cancel it after the fourth season people are like, well, why can't Netflix just pick it up? And I'd be in that camp mm. because there's something they could do, which is to conclude that storyline and have the reunion that everyone's been looking for from the beginning between father and son. That's what the audience is after. This is what Simu Lu, who plays the son in the show, that's what he's after because as soon as the show was cancelled, he got onto the social media and said, look, why is this happening? I was more than happy to come back for season five. Uh, there was an opportunity for me to direct some episodes. I wanted to see that storyline wound up. Now, Simu Lu is particularly interesting because he's set for a huge stardom very shortly. He's going to be starring in the new Marvel film, Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings, as the titular Shang-Chi. So he's about to become a global superstar, 
But he's still very keen to come back to this quaint little Canadian comedy that he's been doing just to wind it out. And I don't know, I think if a big star like that is keen to do it, and also his co-star, who's probably going to be part of the Star Wars spin-offs coming soon, he's probably keen to come back for it as well. Why don't we see this happen, at least for a TV Oh, good point. Perfect rant for the other Kim's Convenience fans out there. French misogynists everywhere are up in arms that Pepe Le Pew is not featured in any of the current Warner Brothers TV or film projects. Um, The controversial cartoon skunk, who, in all seriousness, has come to represent um, an element of uh, rape culture, his overt romancing of of his on-screen partners, is not uh, uh, sort of looked upon in in a glowing light in today's society, and rightly so. Um, He's been scrubbed from the upcoming Space Jam 2 movies. Go to our Facebook page to see a gallery of images from that film. Um, And uh, I don't think anyone's sort of too upset that that Pepe Le Pew is is no longer within the Warner Looney Tunes fold. Are you okay with Pepe Le Pew being struck off the, 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 the roster? Look, I'm reminded of a tweet that I saw midway through the week after this news first broke. Uh, Daily Show former head writer Elliot Kalin wrote uh, after he saw the headline saying Pepe Le Pew not slated for future Warner Brothers TV projects. He said they could have run this exact headline every year literally since I was born. The reality is Pepe Le Pew, he was a much used figure during the 60s and the heyday of the Looney Tunes cartoons. Hasn't really been used that much since then. He was going to be a limited feature within the Space Jam 2 film. You said nobody's upset about this. One of the people upset about it, and I don't have her name in front of me, but the actress who was appearing opposite Pepe Le Pew was actually a bit upset by this because the scene itself was very much about Pepe Le Pew being the dirty skis bag that he is and having her turn him down and having a whole bunch of women effectively slapping him in the face. To me, I think that's probably actually a positive message, and I think I would have liked to have seen that. Yeah, look, it's interesting because he came out of a time when... Um, French culture sort of uh, thrived upon this image of the um, uh, lusting French Lothario and he was created in the image of the the great sort of French leading men like Alain Dion and and, and the like back in the day. So um, maybe we need to look back at some of those uh, French films of the period and French culture of the period that also suggests that. And this could go, we could go down a rabbit hole here. So um, let the Pepe Le Pew controversy continue. That's what I say. So let's just ban all the French. I think that's the takeaway. <laughs> yes, yeah. let's ban all the French. Hello to all our French listeners out there, of course, and thanks for tuning in. Hey, uh, Zack Snyder's Justice League, all four hours of it. Uh, that's coming out next time, uh, next week, so March 18th, I believe, is the release date but, for it. A few people have already seen an hour yes. of it, though, because there were a few Tom and Jerry enthusiasts, at least one or two, who decided to press play on Tom and Jerry, which is streaming now on HBO and Max. And what did they US. see? And lo and behold, they don't see a cat and a mouse involved in shenanigans. Instead, they see the first hour of Zack Snyder's Justice League. Wow. Were you, on, were you online? Did you see? I was in front of the computer when this was oh. all happening, so I did jump onto the HBO Max, wow. got a sneaky subscription to that. Unfortunately, it was not working for me. So some people managed to see the first hour and that's about it. Now, people had found ways to do it. So if you just kept on refreshing it, you were able to get into it eventually and see the Justice League. But nobody seems to have actually recorded it. So there's no sneaky torrents or anything around. Let's get up to Queensland, mate. Everything happening in Queensland as we speak. Um, It is announced during the week that George Clooney and Julia Roberts, two of the biggest movie stars of 10 years ago, will film Universal Pictures' Ticket to Paradise. 
in Queensland this year. Now, this is on the back of Baz Luhrmann's Elvis project, which recently wrapped. Uh, Ron Howard starts production on the uh, Thai cave drama 13 Lives. There's the Amazon original series 2, the second series of The Wilds. That starts filming there next month. Australian Survivor is in the Queensland outback. Um, Universal Studios' Joe Exotic movie um, is heading into the screen Queensland Studios in April. And there's a new teen series from Fremantle called Taylor's Island that will film on the Gold Coast. Look, to be honest, there's a lot of production going on in many parts of Australia, but Queensland seems to have the lock on on some of these big Hollywood projects. Um, we can only hope that this continues. A lot of it's happening because... A lot of our facilities, frankly, are just open when the rest of the world um, is it. And there's some big tax breaks coming from the the state and and national film bodies and and governments to bring um, this sort of talent down under. So George Clooney and Julia Roberts were last together in Money Monster, uh, which wasn't a particularly great film, but um, certainly that kind of star power on the Gold Coast should should suggest that Ticket to Paradise is... um, is going to bring a whole lot more attention to the the silky golden sands of our um, our northern state. Now, three things I just want to touch off from you there. One, money money monster. I kind of liked yeah, it, but no, it's not a great it. no, movie. Not a movie no. Yeah, it's fun enough. It was a good afternoon out to the cinema. Yeah. Uh, number two, I am going to challenge the idea that George Clooney is not a big star anymore. <laughs> I'm uh, having that. He was just recently in the Midnight Sky, yeah. which uh, was a Netflix original. Supposedly based on Netflix's shonky metrics, 72 million households tuning into I'm it. I'm being facetious. I'm a huge George Clooney fan, so I do apologise, George. I know you're listening, so sorry about that. Look, he's a huge fan. And just quietly, if you haven't seen The Midnight Sky, I thought that was fantastic. I was very Me much too. into that Terrific film. film. The third thing, on the subject of uh, production happening within Australia to such a heavy level, you do have the complaints happening, the grumbling happening within the local industry of local producers who are now finding that being squeezed out of production facilities, they're now finding it's actually harder to be able to get uh, crew and talent. Not a new complaint that's been going on for a long time. When when the Matrix. Oh, and- but it's it's especially difficult right yeah. now. It's not just one or two productions. There is just so much happening that it's even becoming hard. Once you've locked in talent and crew, sometimes they're just being lured away at the last minute by much better budgets. I remember very vivid stories of when uh, the Matrix sequels and Superman were were clogging up. Um, all the crew over at Fox Studios here in Sydney, uh, local producers were saying, well, it's great that we've got these facilities, but no one can get into them for 12 months because they're all booked so far ahead. So there's a downside. It's, I mean, it's great to see the crews and the, and the um, cast people getting, getting this sort of work with this sort of talent. But yeah, you're right. We need to make room for mid-level and low-level budgeted pr- local productions as well. Let's wrap things up with a discussion about Disney+. Plus. You've heard of it, a little streaming service that could. Yeah, I know of it. They have passed. <laughs> You know of it? Yeah. Uh, They've passed 100 million subscribers. So that's a pretty big anniversary, but maybe just a bit of context there. Uh, Look around. There's not many streaming services that have actually passed 100 million subscribers, let alone doing it in what I believe has been 16 months since the initial launch. So it really speaks to the power of that service. And you look at services like Netflix right now, which are playing around with the idea they're going to lock out people who aren't necessarily paying for their service. You know, password sharing takes place a fair bit. Mm. Uh, Netflix at the moment are struggling with the idea that, yes, they are wanting to try to get people to actually pay for their service, but at the same time, they've now got competition like Disney Plus out in the marketplace who are getting 100 million subscribers globally. Can they necessarily afford to lose the buzz, the sheen 
of being the number one streaming service if they're going to cut out a whole bunch of their subscribers who aren't paying for it like how do they balance that up and this is the question for big players like netflix as they look at your disney plus passing 100 million hbo max is struggling a little bit but when they start going global they're probably going to be in that 100 million category as well so Gee, it's, it's an interesting time for streaming it's a fascinating battlefield because you've got the still the relatively new player on the block in netflix a brand new brand um uh all creating their own content, riding on the back of just their brand alone. Whereas with Disney Plus, you've got the Disney might, uh, marketing might. You've got the Star Wars, the Marvel, the Fox catalog. So you've got all this very traditional content and, and, and traditionally marketed brands under the one Disney banner. So, yeah, look, it's it's a fascinating old versus new type of battlefield all set within this this streaming space. It's It's a fascinating time to launch a podcast on watching screens, isn't it? Simon Foster, mm-hmm. I like free things. Do you like free oh, things? Oh, I love free things. It's the only reason I do these podcasts, to get things sent to me. Exactly. So in the spirit of free things, we'd like to share the love. And I believe that we have 10 tickets to an upcoming movie called The Grizzlies. That's right, Dan. The good people at Heritage Films have given us 10 in-season passes to The Grizzlies. Um, next week on the show, we'll be talking to director Miranda DePontier about this remarkable film, the feel-good movie of the year. I'm absolutely in love with this film. If you only see one Inuit lacrosse movie this year. It should be the Grizzlies. We're going to deep dive deeper into its story next week. But go to our Facebook page. Um, we'll be giving away tickets. Uh, you'll see all the T's and C's and uh, on the Facebook page. It's called the Grizzlies in cinemas next week, March 18. Um, check out the Facebook page for details. Now, look, often on programs like this, you'll hear people give, do giveaways like that. They'll say it's a great show. You know, answer the competition. Literally next week, we are talking to the director of the film, Miranda Depensia. We recorded the interview the other day. It's a good interview. Now, Simon, I believe, will probably give a pretty positive uh, review for this. And just to indicate, Simon sent me a text the other day straight after watching it. Yeah. He said, watching Grizzlies, it's great, exclamation marks. Yeah. One of those great underprivileged kids, community saved by sport movies. Love those types of movies. And you were very excited about the interview straight after watching the film. So, you know, Simon liked the film. I think it's a good conversation to answer. Yeah, what you'll find is that despite our general demeanour, we have a fair bit of integrity on this show. We're not going to put our name on anything (laughs) that um, we don't fully believe in. Um, And The Grizzlies is cut from that same sort of cloth as films like Hoosiers or Breaking Away. Um, And if you like those sort of films, and I absolutely do, then you will love Grizzlies and you really should uh, head on over and try to get a couple of free passes to go along and see it because it's uh, it's getting a fairly wide release next week, March 18, but um, you might have to dig around to find it. But uh, yeah, we're all on board for, for the release of Grizzlies. And you're right, Miranda de Pontier is a, a terrific interview um, and do join us next week for that. Indeed. Uh, I also reject the idea I've got integrity, but let's move on. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I forgot who I was dealing with here for a second. <laughs> Now, Simon, speaking of the integrity that both of us hold so dear to our personal selves, reviews, I think we should kick things off. Do you want to kick things off? There's a brand new Warner Brothers film called Judas and the Black Messiah. You think you're going to be a bad mother? It was a question. Why you got to ask yourself that? I don't, I don't know. Maybe the fact that I'm bringing a child into a war zone. These aren't considerations you have to make. You get to go out there talk about dying a revolutionary death and how your your body belonged to the revolution because you don't have another person growing inside your body. Judas and the Black Messiah tells the story of two African-American males. One, William Bill O'Neill, is a, a young petty criminal who's arrested in Chicago 
after attempting to hijack a car, and he's then put in uh, a uh, undercover role. Um, ruled over by an FBI special agent, Roy Mitchell, played by Jesse Plemons. Um, He is charged with infiltrating the Illinois chapter of the Black Panther Party and getting close to its leader, Fred Hampton, played by the wonderful Daniel Kaluuya. It's always a difficult name to say. Um, So what you have is a real slice of very turbulent American history um, in which the FBI and the CIA are reaching out and um, infiltrating uh, these revolutionary groups that are that are uh, striving for social change. Fred Hampton, and this is all captured in the film, is a is a powerful orator. He's a leader of men and women, and um, vast communities of not just African American but also dispossessed um, uh, lower class white folk and uh, Puerto Rican and Latino community members. Um, and he is uh, absolutely uh, sort of rallying the troops and affecting some very serious change uh, at the, at a very sort of volatile point in American history. This film captures a small slice of that. This film captures what extraordinary um, personalities O'Neill and Hampton were, and what uh, a real horrible sort of manipulative individual Roy Mitchell was. This also features uh, quite a turn by Martin Sheen as... J. Edgar Hoover in some real Harry Potter style makeup, but um, look, it's it's a film that is beautifully shot, beautifully made, gives kind of a crib note version of of what happened at that time, but does so in a way that certainly gets the potency and the power of the the um, Black Panther movement, Fred Hampton, uh, across as well as the kind of pitiful character that that Bill O'Neill revealed himself to be. You managed to see the film as well. Your thoughts? Look, I quite liked her. I'm not sure I'm necessarily as enamoured with her as a lot of people. I found it was... I don't know, it felt like a little bit of a slog to watch. Like, I, I just didn't find it particularly that engaging, but I definitely appreciated the craft and everyone's performance on oh, screen. The it was a film I think I wanted to enjoy a lot more than I actually did. Yeah, look, I think that, I think Daniel Kaluuya, who's getting a whole lot of the, the um, uh, award sort of season talk for his performance as Hampton, is strong and powerful in the lead. Lakeith Stanfield as as Bill O'Neill is 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 fine. Um he's uh he kind of gets blown off the screen a bit by Kalua and also by Jesse Plemmers as the FBI agent. Um and uh, there's also the incredible Dominic Fishback as um uh, Hampton's love interest. She's uh she is a wonderfully strong female presence in the film. So look, yeah, I know there there has been some kickback about this film not quite being the sum of its parts. It has a lot of sort of very good, even great moments that don't seem to quite add up to a a potent uh, full film. But there's still plenty to see here. It's certainly the the film release of the week. Yeah, and suddenly a cinema release rather than wait for it to come onto home video. I think it's beautifully shot yeah. with a lot more on a big screen beautifully shot film it looks fantastic in parts they recreate the period and especially the mood of the period um really really well coming to wednesday night on abc tv and iview is a new australian comedy called fisk helen when someone dies it's sad mm-hmm. then it's kind of boring there's a lot of business a lot of paperwork what we've found here is that people would prefer to deal with a more mature lady can't say lady anymore sort of um, female non-male whatever you call yourself woman usually point is you are one mm. so tick tick and tick helen tudor fisk tick tick and tick as in i got the job yes no one in this pile even comes close to your age what are you 50 55 47 you look older which works for me start monday 
Sure, great. Thank Welcome you. Welcome aboard. Great stuff. I'm loving the yellow. Oh, good, because I just... I'm joking. No. I'll see you Monday. No high-vis, yeah? Kitty Flanagan has proven over the last 20 years to be one of the funniest comedians on television, so it's beyond time she was given her own show. The wait was worth it because new ABC comedy series Fisk is a genuine delight. The premise has Flanagan starring as Helen Tudor Fisk, a lawyer who's fired from a Sydney law firm, and she's now returned home to Melbourne to take a job working for a very shabby firm that specialises in wills and probate. She's a no-nonsense sort of person who's happy just to keep her head down and get on with life, but instead she's constantly butting heads with those who aren't applying common sense. The show was co-created and written by Flanagan, along with Porchlight Films' Vincent Sheehan, and the show, it's a very sitcom-y premise mm. with a low-key performance by Flanagan that works very much in the show's favour. It has her floating through the world despite its obstacles, rather than delivering the audience a tired shtick of the all-knowing hero who thrives off there being the only sane person in a world gone mad. Each week, the premise of the show introduces us a case of the week story with some really fun guest stars. Episode one's got this really lovely performance by the wonderful Alison White. There's another guest star in the episode, but I don't really want to reveal who that is because there's a great reveal midway through that episode as he enters into it. But as far as Australian comedy guest stars go, it's exactly who you want it to be. Uh, Flanagan, she's given a really fun supporting cast. It includes Marty Sheargold as a lackadaisical co-owner of the firm. His partner's a recently despised lawyer, a highly fussy lawyer played by Julia Zemiro. And I've also got an admin assistant slash webmaster played by Aaron Chen. Now Fisk, it's genuinely laugh out loud. It tickled me beyond belief and stylistically, it falls very much in the same low-key comedy style as shows like Rosehaven but it's not entirely a slam dunk either. I do think the show's biggest failing is that at times it's a little bit lazy and dated. They've got an ongoing plot line about Helen being banned from a local coffee shop, and that kind of feels ridiculous in this day and age where it's impossible not to find multiple coffee shops on any given street, especially in Melbourne where this is set. And then you've got Julia Zemiro's character, Roz Gruber, who's styled very much in a dated 90s manner, which doesn't really look like anyone has looked like for way too long to be able to get away with it in a show. That said, I think Fist delivers everything you're looking for from a fun hangout comedy, and this one I think will have a lot of fans. Simon, I know you've seen this one. What did you think? Um, I largely echo your thoughts. I thought it was uh, sitcom-y to the point of distraction in parts. I thought um, this is the sort of show you watch because you enjoy uh, the way people talk in sitcoms, not the way people talk in, in real life. There's um, This is, uh, you know, it, it, it is both cut from a similar cloth as, as shows like Rosehaven and, and that very sort of strong Australian comedy template that we've seen a bit of over the last few years, but also in that American tradition of people walking through rooms and dropping one lines that are meant to be funny. Nobody in this show really talks like people in real life, but that's part of the joy of of um, seeing these people in their workplace and their lives through the through the prism of a, of a sitcom life. Look, I, I totally agree. I think Kitty Flanagan's a, a wonderful talent. It's great to see Marty Sheargold, who I've been a fan of for many years, um, put in a, a, a really solid comedy performance. Um, I also agree with you about um, some of the laziness of the scripting, hoping that the talent of Julia Zemiro is used a lot more effectively in future episodes. But yeah, you're right. I think for the, the, the first few episodes that I've seen, and I know you've seen a couple more, it's um it's a solid um, starter for, for a, uh, an Australian show and um, hopefully we'll, we'll find its feet and move on to, to even better things. Yeah, Zemiro, like, I was actually a bit disappointed by it because I think it's actually a very fun character and she's a good presence. 
but I think maybe it's just a wardrobe issue. <laughs> Get rid of that hairstyle and just give her the exact same personality, but maybe looking a little less comical because she's the most comical looking character in the show to the point where it actually feels like she's in a different show to everybody else. Like, I kind of think maybe just refine that character a little bit and I think they're onto a winner with her. Did you have any issues, and maybe I'm speaking out of school here a little bit, but did you have, was it problematic at all, the depiction of the Asian characters in this? You know what, I was actually one debating with myself whether or not I had an issue with it enough to warrant a mention in yeah. this. The main character of Helen Fisk, because she's left Sydney recently and is relocated to Melbourne, she's living out of an Airbnb until she gets her life mm. in order. So while she's doing that, she's uh, living in a property that adjoins the house of the owners of the Airbnb, which I think is a fairly common situation with a lot of Airbnbs. And that family is constantly interfering in her household. So it's a Vietnamese family. And all that we see is the grandmother character who's constantly wandering in and out of the household, cooking meals, feeding her dog. And then you've got the, she doesn't speak English. And then you've got the granddaughter who does speak Mm. English and is kind of communicating, but very much not on Fisk's side. Watching that, I kind of felt like the entire storyline would have worked better maybe if it was more of a like Greek or Italian family who I think... And this is playing completely in stereotypes, but also my background, Slovenian, which is kind of Italian, so I feel like I can trade and walk stereotypes. So I'm going to own this one for myself. Thinking about like my family, members of my family who are landlords, they get very involved in their properties to the point where I kind of think, and particularly Melbourne, which has such a strong Italian-Greek immigrant population, if they just did that, it would have felt very true. And again, this might be stereotypical, but my understanding is that generally a lot of Asian families aren't necessarily so much interested in doing as the Italians and Greeks do and being very involved in the households, but really they're just looking at it as a money collecting mechanism and aren't really actively involved in the house. That's me actually kind of felt a little bit not quite accurate. I didn't quite buy into that entirely. And so that's where I felt that discrepancy happened. So I didn't feel as racist per se as much as playing a race card where maybe that race card shouldn't have been played in a way that another race card should have. I thought the character played by Aaron Chan, uh, the webmaster in The Office, um, coupled with the cafe owner who's also an inner city sort of man bun um, uh, stereotype, and then the Airbnb owners who were borderline cruel in the way they treated her and certainly at odds with how Airbnb run their de- demand their business <laughs> yeah. is being run. I just thought there might have been one... Totally unintentional, of course, but maybe one sort of insensitive portrayal too many in this series. But maybe that'll come, that'll surface later on. Look, I mean, that's also true. I'd say with Aaron Chen, though, like, were you familiar with Aaron Chen pre this? Uh, Not so much, no. Like, to me, this is Aaron Chen giving a very Aaron Chen performance. Like, this is absolutely what he does. (laughs) And so I didn't even really think about Aaron Chen so much in the context of that, because to me, it was just like, oh, it's Aaron Chen. And the show plays to these comic talent strengths. It's the same with Marty Sheargold. It's the same with that actor you mentioned who we won't give away. I'll tell you a very funny story. Um, I'm halfway through the first episode, and all these very familiar comedic faces turn up, and I thought, boy, the only person that haven't got in this is dot 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 sure enough at the end of the episode <laughs> he turns up so and and doing what he does best uh let's just say that um so that's fisk uh when can we see it abc's wednesday night from ABC, nine o'clock. wednesday night so it's in one of those great time slots where just following like the weekly with charlie sure. Pickering, and then everyone will stick around for this like i think this is going to become a lot of people's favorite show for the next couple it's of weeks very, it's, it's good fun and i think you're right i think it will sort of grow as the as the episodes go along let's go to a new film that's in cinemas uh it's called then came you 
So much more beautiful than the pictures. Ah, Annabelle, this is Claire, my fiance. And is your husband here with you? No, he passed away a little over a year ago. 20 countries of your 20 favorite movies. It's fascinating. I'm just all about new everythings these days. Then Came You is a starring vehicle for one of our favorite performers, Craig Ferguson. Uh, you may remember him as the host of The Late Late Show with uh, Jeff the Robot, Jeff Peterson, one of my favorite hours of television from the last couple of decades. Um, he never really took off as a big screen actor. He gets a chance to do in this film, which is a very sweet, small, mature age romantic fantasy about a man played by Craig Ferguson who runs a big Scottish estate that carries with it a lot of emotional baggage for him. He lost his wife and it used to be their home. Now it's a guest house. Um, into that guest house comes Annabelle, played by the quite delightful Kathy Lee Gifford. Um, they instantly start bickering like sort of silver-haired teenagers. Um, and as you'd expect, romance and some... Uh, shenanigans ensue with a little bit of a dark cloud over both of them. Both of them are still dealing with grief and the inability to find emotional connection in their their later years, which is perhaps putting too uh, fine a point on the the, the uh, heaviness of this situation. This is a very light, very fluffy picture postcard uh, romantic fantasy. Um, in that regard, it relies entirely on the chemistry of the two leads and Gifford and Ferguson are very funny and very sweet together. They've obviously got a long history of, of off-screen friendship, um, which I know to be true, and they play that up perfectly. Um, this is going to satisfy a lot of seniors club ticket holders at the cinema over the next week or so, and I encourage those of you who maybe want to Get your, your mums and dads out into the cinemas and see something uh, you can do a whole lot worse than, than then came you. Look, I saw this as well. The chemistry between both the leads, it's really quite evident on screen. Yep. But not knowing that the two of them had a relationship prior to this, I was actually left wondering how difficult it is not to have charisma with Craig Ferguson. Yep. He's such a magnetic personality and he's not really required to do that much in a film that extends beyond the personality we've seen from him, from the late night chalk show and also his role on Drew Carey. But he's got a greater depth to him on screen here in like an almost effortless way. And the way he's playing against Gifford, I don't know, there was just so much energy and magnetism to it that it was actually really hard to take my eyes off the And screen. the film is totally reliant upon that. There is very little story. In fact, the large sections of the plot unfold um, almost, you know, through these disembodied voices. There's one sequence where a car is driving through the countryside. The hardest working person on this film was the, the, the drone pilot, I guarantee that. Um, and big swathes of dialogue are dumped without ever seeing the actor's face um, just in voiceover. So they clearly didn't have a lot of money to make this film, but what they um, did have was a lot of heart and a lot of honesty um, and a very sweet sort of take on mature age love and, and finding that special someone later in life. So, yes, don't wait for the Oscar nominations to come out. That's not going to happen for Then Came You, but it is going to be a very sweet film that hopefully finds a little bit of an audience in the cinemas, but will find a huge audience when it comes to the, the home streaming platforms. Yeah, it's a bit of a weird cinema release. Like, it felt to me like one of the rom-coms you find from Lifetime or Hallmark. Yep. Like, it's very TV movie-like. And in the same way that a lot of those films play with older stars from, you know, years gone by who aren't necessarily known as being on-screen actors, like Kathy Lee Gifford, for example, sure. who has acted a little bit in the past, but she's known for being a Christian uh, music star, based, like slash TV talk show host, slash another TV talk show host in another form. Yeah. Like she's very well known to TV viewers. She's not really an actor, but everything in this film, like she wrote the film. Yeah. 
which I think is probably worth noting as well. And it's very much created as a star vehicle for her, but it's also playing with themes that she's very interested in as a person, which is the idea of loss. Like she's someone who has lost two of her husbands through her life yeah. now. Um, and particularly Frank Gifford, who she'd been with for many, many years. And this film is very much a response to a lot of the public persona talking about this kind of thing. And we can't ignore the absolutely magnificent Ardkingless Ard House in the Scottish coastal hamlet of Candow, where this was shot. Um, go on to the... Uh, it's just Google Candow, uh, C-A-I-R-N-D-O-W, um, to get an insight into what this house means to the region and how beautiful a setting it really is, a, a lockside estate that looks absolutely gorgeous on film. So certainly um, fantasy for the eyes and for the heart as well, the film is Then Came You. Now I'm going to leave with a question, which is why is Craig Ferguson not the star of some sort of quaint Scottish uh, TV show dealing with a family living in like Scotland somewhere and all the shenanigans that take place? Make him a bartender and give her 300 episodes. I'm there for it. I think that's a great idea. He's a, he's a rare talent, and I'm not quite sure why he hasn't gone on to a bigger, big screen um, career. So uh, this is a good chance to check him out. Simon, I want to wrap out our reviews with a very quick look at the new French Netflix series, Dealer. Spielberg. <laughs> Look, Simon, I'm not going to spend too much time talking about this one because I thought it was a show that took a very promising premise and structure and it just did everything wrong with it straight out of the gate. The premise of Dealer is you got Frank. He's a music video director. He's been hired to shoot a music video featuring an emerging rap star. When he arrives at the rapper's neighborhood, his car and equipment's confiscated by the rapper's gang of coke-fueled street toughs ahead of the arrival of the rapper. Shots are fired in the direction of the director and his cameraman. And then we meet the rapper who takes the duo further into his world as he insists that they film his world and ignore the storyboarded music video they were set to work to. Now, this is a found footage series with 10 very short episodes, yes. which run from about 8 to 15 minutes apiece. It's designed as a tense thrill ride through the Parisian crime-infested suburbs that are often not really seen on screen outside of the occasional French film like La Haine. Now, very quickly, the show feels less like a film and more like a cheesy movie world style amusement attraction, where the camera person's a vessel for the audience to be spoken to and to follow the main characters. There's never really a sense the camera person is actually a real physical person in any given scene. And for the first two episodes, the show is constantly falling over itself to try to establish why the director and cameraman are sticking around to film the rapper, despite such a risk to their safety, along with establishing the rules for found footage structure as its point of view keeps on flipping between the camera guy and some GoPros that are also filming it. Now, taking that time to establish the rules of found footage might have been okay, say, 20 years ago when it was a new thing, but now, not so much. And this kind of thing might work okay for a VR experience or something that's a little bit more immersive, but on the TV screen, you kind of feel like this has all been done before and it doesn't really have any vitality to actually lock the viewer in. By episode two, the short run times are feeling very, very long indeed. Okay, I'm going to counter that a little bit. I am a big fan of the found footage format. In fact, yesterday afternoon, uh, the day that we record this, I sat through 100 minutes of a terrible found footage film on Netflix <laughs> called Real, on Amazon called Real Cases of Shadow People, The Missing, The Sarah McCormack Mystery or some crap like that. Um, and it's Surprising a person that's not good. <laughs> it's a terrible found footage film, but... I'm a big fan. So when Dealer came along, I was very keen to see it. Found footage for me is 
a filmmaking gimmick in the same way that 3D is. If it's used well um, and uh, creates its own universe and create and builds its own world in a believable manner, I think there's still room for really well-made uh, found footage. And there's enough... But, but wait, so, sorry, before you go so much further, isn't there essentially a good way to establish a found footage film? So this is a series that, as I said, it's a short-form structure for every episode. Mm. And literally the first two episodes are taken up with so much time dedicated to explaining the rules of the found footage and the technology there to capture the found footage. Like, are we not at the point where you can have a found footage film and have a throwaway line or two? We all know what's going on. Like, you just need to say, that's the cameraman, and we can get on with it. Yep. Yeah, look, but instead, I, this I film just belabors so- the point. I, I, look, I totally agree. I certainly don't think Dealer is is a high watermark in the found footage genre. Um, I think that once that sort of clunky early episodes uh, are, are done with, that it, it uses the format pretty well. Um, I didn't mind the actual conceit that they're, they're filming this uh, ex-crim rapper in his real world. Um, if you run with that, it, it's a pretty solid sort of look inside the, the, the mean streets of Paris. Um, so look, I'm gonna. I'm certainly not going to suggest it's uh, it's queuing up for any awards this award season. But I think Dealer had enough immediacy and action elements to it to to make it a, a very quick watch. As you say, ten episodes, averaging about eleven minutes each. So it's um, it's not going to take up a huge chunk of anyone's weekend. And and if you're a fan of sort of energized, adrenalized filmmaking, I think Dealer's Dealer offers the goods. Well, the other thing that kind of threw me a little bit is that it is a serialized story cut across ten episodes. Mm. Essentially, for something which is so heavily rooted in the idea it's a highly kinetic, energized story, having to stop every 10 minutes for the credits to roll for about three seconds before Netflix starts playing the next one, yes, it just keeps on me, sapping yeah. the energy every time. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree with that. I don't know, maybe it doesn't suit the, the, the Netflix format. Maybe that's a problem. Maybe it would have worked better as a, as a web series. Um, it, was a, it is apparently based on a feature film from 2017, which I hadn't heard of. Um, but which has been adapted for, for the small screen. Um, I'll err on the side of liking it and fully understand why you do not. Simon, we like to wind out the show every week by taking a look at the week ahead. It's a lot. We've got boy. a couple of new and returning series this week. Yeah. Coming to stand on the 11th of March, we've got Cryptids, which is a Swedish series. They're dropping all the episodes at once. And the show is about a chain of unexpected events that unfold in a small town. High school friends will be forced to face their darkest fears in order to overcome a supernatural force. Ooh, I like the sound of that. That sounds interesting. Cryptids on Stan. Uh, that uh, is already on air. That began March 11. March 12 uh, today, Making Their Mark, uh, an Amazon Prime series. This is a look inside the big stories of last year's AFL footy season, or the, the burning remains of it, thanks to COVID. Um, these insider sports docos are, are, are sort of all the rage at the moment. Uh, there was the test on Amazon Prime um, early last year about the Australian cricket team. There's been a um, AFLW uh, doco as well, doco series. Um, so, yeah, they, they, they do give a, a really fascinating inside look to, to what goes on in the world of big sport and big business. Sometimes they're just marketing tools, as the, the, a couple of the recent ones coming out of the English Premier League have been. Uh, but when they're done well, they do give a solid insight. And to see how big sports survive COVID, that's... Um, that should make for interesting television. Yeah, we've got a couple of new movies that are debuting on streaming this week. Uh, debuting later today, we've got Yesterday, 
which is the Jennifer Garner, Edgar Ramirez film with two parents who decide to give their three kids a yes day, where for 24 hours the kids make the oh rules. God, what a nightmare. Reviews are not kind. No, it's good to see Edgar Ramirez playing something light. He's usually the guy who plays in the, the dark, nasty sort of film from Narcos, if I remember. Wasn't that Edgar Ramirez? Uh, I'm not too sure, but he was definitely Carlos. He, oh, sorry, yes, Carlos, that's right. I do apologise. Um, wait to see. And I just realised he's playing a character called Carlos here again. Oh, he really is. Okay. Um, Presumably not the same character. <laughs> also getting a lot of attention is uh, an Apple Plus movie called Cherry. This features Tom Holland and is directed by the Russo brothers who did uh, several of the, the Marvel films. Um, this is about a returned soldier. He's battling PTSD and drug addiction, desperately trying to hang on to his relationship with uh, a young woman but falls into a pretty nasty criminal crowd. This has had mixed reviews, but all suggest that Holland gives a pretty riveting central performance, and I'm keen to see what the Russo brothers do outside of outside of the Marvel Universe. It's called Cherry on Apple+. Plus. Yeah, it's got a fun-looking trailer, but yeah, the reviews have maybe a little skittish on this one. Mm. Uh, there's a film that's coming to stand called The Legend of Baron Tuar. It's the Karate Kid meets South Auckland <laughs> when Fritz uh, learns the warrior ways of his old dad so he can secure the return of his family's treasured pro wrestling title belt from local gangsters. Wow, well said. Which sounds like a fairly fun premise. Have you seen much from this? I've seen the trailer. Uh, I know that it um, got a lot of attention because of the... Uh, uh, presence of the Australian Tonga actor Yuli Latukufu. Um, so, yeah, we're keen to see this one on stand. They've got a pretty good history of, of showing locally made and, and uh, Antipodean films, as they say, uh, the stand people. So, um, yeah, very keen to see The Legend of Baron Toa. Yeah, now something that I am super keen in checking out is The Last Blockbuster, which is a doco dropping on Netflix on the 15th of March. And as you can guess by the title, the doco is looking at the last remaining blockbuster video which was in Bend, Oregon. Yes, as a um, as a remnant of the VHS era myself, I am very keen to see what uh, the the last blockbuster is all about. Uh, March fifteen on Netflix. There's a lot happening on the big screen around Australia. My goodness, we've got a lot to get through. The revival of the Tony and Olivia Award winning Tap Spectacle Forty Second Street is heading into theaters all around the country. Um, a filmed version of the the stage musical, um, one of my favourite stage musicals, one of my favourite. You know, films of all time is Forty Second Street, so I'm keen what to, what they do with that. Yeah, we've got Max Richter's Sleep, which follows the composer and performer as he prepares for an ambitious performance of his eight hour opus. That's almost like Zack Snyder's <laughs> Justice League length, right there. <laughs> he is actually, and now this played at the Sydney Opera House. He has crafted this um, musical uh, evening, which uses the beats and biorhythms of the body, um, and he gets people to lie and fall asleep in front of his. Uh, performance and it's meant to provide a perfect night's sleep so this is should make for a fascinating documentary the trailers looks a lot more energized and exciting than the uh, the premise suggests and i do just want to point out that also in cinemas is a movie called cosmic sin now this stars um megastar bruce willis um and rising star frank grillo they face off against alien invaders this is a movie that Bruce, this is the kind of movie that Bruce has been making for a while now. These are straight to video titles. And if you go to your local JB Hi-Fi, you'll see them for about six ninety five in the dump bins they leave around the store. Um, how this managed to creep into cinemas, I'm not quite sure. It really suggests that um, there is a, uh, an absolute void of quality cinema product around. Um, critics are reacting in this, oh my God, what's happened to Bruce Willis kind of way. Thing is, Bruce Willis has been making these movies for quite some time now, but they just never 
front up anywhere other than straight to, to videos. So to actually see one of these very mid to low level science fiction stories hit cinemas is kind of a novelty, but it's kind of terrible as well. So um, only for the diehard Bruce Willis fans. Yeah, it feels to me like Bruce Willis made a big mistake by hiring Nicolas Cage as his financial advisor. Hey, 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 hey. Don't go Nicolas Cage. If, we, if we're going to go Nicolas Cage, this is going to go into a whole other episode. <laughs> oh boy, that really took me by surprise. Look, I'm going to have to walk away from it. Okay, I'm back. Okay, well, as you work through your share portfolio of all the investment you've made in Nicolas Cage, I'm going to discuss some of the films playing at cinemas near you. And burning through this very quickly, there are a few favourites. So playing at a few Denny's cinemas around the place, you can find Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Something I'm very keen to check out on Saturday afternoon is High Noon, playing at the Ritz Randwick at 12.15. Find me there up on the top level. It's a two-level cinema. I love that place. It is great, yeah. Playing at the Astor in Melbourne is a Giallo double feature. Now, Giallo, for those not in the know, is a Italian horror movement. Two of the classics of the period, A Lizard in a Woman's Skin by director Lucio Fulci from 1971, plus The Bird with the Crystal Plumage by the great Dario Argento from 1970. They're playing uh, on the March 15th from 7.30 at the Astor in Melbourne. At the Golden Age, which I know made it into the list of the 100 nicest cinemas in the world, according to Time Out, and something which I don't agree with at all. Really nice bar, but I don't care for the cinema inside. Uh, the Golden Age in the Surrey Hills has uh, a horror season. It's got Scream, Suspiria, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Alien, and Carrie. Great films. I still wouldn't check it out at the Golden Age. <laughs> Not a fan of the Golden Age, obviously. All right, on this day, March 12th, um, kind of a big deal. Back in 1989, Sir Tim Berners-Lee submits his pro- proposal to CERN. For an information management system, guess what? It went on to become the World Wide Web, so very big day. We wouldn't be here if it wasn't for Mr. Tim Berners-Lee, so congratulations to you, sir. Well, I'd probably be here. We'd find a way, would we? We'd just walk around to people's houses and stick our heads in their window and talk about movies. It would be like a speaker's corner sort of a situation. (laughs) Hey, we've got some birthdays as well. Uh, Basically, love of my life, Barbara Feldon. She was born on this day, 1933. I saw Barbara Feldon at like a supernova a couple of years ago. She's gorgeous. Absolutely beautiful. My heart's still beating. Old jazz hands herself, Liza Minnelli. Uh, she was born in 1946, one of the great entertainers of the last century. Oh, my God. Look who was born in 1962. Oh, it's Bosch star Titus Welliver. Oh, my God. Bosch again. What is it with Bosch? It's everywhere at the moment. Titus Welliver. What a great name. I'll give him that. That's a good name. 1962. What's that? Makes him about a 1,000 years old? Yeah, roughly. Makes him about Simon Foster age right there. That's cold. And the uh, the great John Cazaley. We should note that on this day in 1978, John Cazaley passed away from cancer. Boy, did he achieve some incredible um, films in his very short life. Dog Day Afternoon, The Deer Hunter, The Godfather films. Was engaged to Meryl Streep. Um, very sad that he passed away um, at no- in, in 1978 at the age of 41. Such a terrible loss. Simon, we've reached the end of the podcast this has been the end of screen watching. Thank you very much for listening. My name has been, and will probably continue to be, Dan Barrett. You can sign up for my free newsletter, Always Be Watching, at alwaysbewatching.com. Every day there's an email newsletter with the biggest news stories in TV streamings and sometimes film. And on Friday, there's a big guide to the shows that launched that week. Now you can also find me on Twitter at the Dan Barrett. Simon Foster, where can people find you online? 
You can find my work over at ScreenSpace, that's screen-space.net. There you'll find my semi-regular rants about all things film. I'm on Twitter at at SimonRFoster1. Tickets go on sale soon for my festival venture, the Sydney Science Fiction Film Festival. Stay tuned for that. Um, on ScreenSpace this week, you can see more writings about Then Came You, uh, plus my picks for the ScreenWave International Film Festival. So a lot happening on my site. Thank you, Dan. If you've enjoyed this podcast and you're not yet following it via your favorite podcast app, correct your mistake, load it up right now and hit the follow button. It's free and jam-packed with news, reviews and on most weeks, some interviews as well. We've got that every darn week. And of course, you can follow Screen Watching over at Facebook. Simon Foster, it has been an absolute pleasure and also a delight. I guess we'll be back next week with more Screen Watching. We're well, going to have a very serious talk about you and Nicolas Cage. Goodbye, Dan. Farewell.